name is Caroline Garnham from boutique law firm Garnham Family Office Services. We protect and preserve the wealth of the world's rich and famous. But having a good lawyer is only part of the solution. My podcast, How to Keep Your Money, draws on my 30 years experience and my extensive network of professional advisors to better inform you. Subscribe to our podcast and learn from the professionals on how to keep your money. This is episode four of How to Keep Your Money with Peter Gray of Aldabashi Gray from based in Dubai. I'm joined in the studio by Peter Gray, founder and managing partner of Aldabashi Gray, a multidisciplined law firm in Dubai, which Peter set up with co-managing partner Mohammed Aldabashi. Peter has an extensive network, like Garnham Family Office Services, so most concerns or problems can be handled anywhere across the globe, and if they can't, he will know someone who does. Peter, welcome to How to Keep Your Money, fourth episode. You're born and brought up in the UK, went to Cambridge University and studied to be a UK barrister. What inspired you to leave lovely London to live and work as a lawyer in the UAE? Well, thank you, Caroline, for inviting me uh, here today. Um, always good to be here. So, um, yeah, I, I used to work for a US firm in the city uh, as a litigation lawyer, and um, along with many lawyers and city firms, had a very international practice, and I did a lot of work at that time in Asia and in the Middle East, um, and in particular, I did a very large fraud case on behalf of a Saudi sheikh, um, which we successfully recovered all of the money that... Uh, we said had been taken wrongfully. Um, then the firm opened a Dubai office in about 2008, and I started working with the office remotely from London, and we realised that there was a strong disputes market in Dubai. At the time, the office only had non-contentious lawyers, corporate projects and so on, and so I was really their resource, and as time went along, they said, well, would you move out here, and then you can set up a disputes department. And the opportunity to start something is always... Um, a department of a law firm is obviously um, not something that comes up very much. It was a great opportunity. And at that time, we were in the middle of the global financial crisis in the UK. In, um, by then, it was uh, t- late 2009. And um, so on the one hand, I saw, well, uh, the UK market's going to be flat for a bit, although litigation is counter-cyclical, so we were still, still quite busy. On the other hand, Dubai, which was also suffering uh, by then, um, I recognised there were a lot of opportunities. So we, we upsticked and moved to Dubai in 2010, and I haven't looked back since. Interesting. I'm not sure I would find living in a country where you could be flogged for consuming alcohol or kissing in public very attractive. But it is a, attractive to a great number of non-Emirati citizens. I understand the UAE has a population of 9.2 million of which only 1.4 million are Emirati citizens, and it gets very hot in July and August, up to 45 degrees. What attracts you to life in Dubai? Well, <laughs> yeah, the, the, um, the Dubai suffers um, from being misunderstood. It's often subject to negative press, much of which is inaccurate. Um, and, uh, for example, it is perfectly legal to drink alcohol in many places in Dubai, and, uh, and many people do a lot. Do a lot. 
Um, so one finds one has to watch the drinking more than uh, running around trying to find one. Um, and uh, Dubai is a, an incredibly tolerant city. I mean, it's for this year is uh, 2019 is the year of tolerance. Um, that is the, the UAE's year of tolerance, of course, Dubai being the second city of the UAE with Abu Dhabi being the capital. Um, and so it does have, it is a conservative Muslim country and it does have rules that, that don't apply in the UK. So for, for example, if you, um, if you swear at somebody, um, say you're driving a, a car and someone cuts you up, um, you make a rude gesture, you, you will be in trouble. Um, but on the other hand, um, some of these things are rather overstated. And so the sort of kissing in public, um, misbehavior on the beach and all these other stories that we've all read about, um, when one digs into them, there's often more than meets the eye. Obviously, I shouldn't talk about any individual case, um, but uh, in my experience, and we advise, one of the things we do is we do help uh, expats who've got into trouble. Uh, we have a, a very good criminal team, and so you come across uh, these cases a lot. Often you find that people did get a warning um, or they were very drunk and they did things they probably shouldn't have done and things got out of hand. And that's usually um, how these things start. Dubai, um, uh, the UAE as a whole, but my, my experience is mainly Dubai, they don't look out for, they don't want to lock people up. They don't want people to have a hard time. A big section of their economy is tourism. They want tourists to enjoy themselves and they know that those tourists may behave in ways which they wouldn't as, as a conservative country, but they, the way they do that is, for example, you're not allowed to drink in the street, but you can drink, many of the hotels have alcohol licenses, so you can drink there. And you see uh, people who've had a few too many, and usually, um, particularly when you're going home at the weekend, and then you often see that staff are very good at making sure they get into the taxi or they calm them down if they're a bit overexcited. There's a great effort to do that. Of course, when you've got millions of people coming through every year, sometimes things do go wrong. and Sometimes those people then capitalise on the previous bad stories um, and, uh, and, and use it to get their publicity. Um, but Dubai does work hard to avoid that when one thinks about it. Although the numbers are never official about the, the Emirati expat split, um, clearly uh, foreigners are in the majority, um, but we're, they welcome us as guests and we're keeping a lot of the economy going as a result. Um, but it, I think it's a fantastic place to live, very inclusive, um, free, full freedom of uh, religion, for example. There are many churches, there are temples. Um, people can, as I say, you can buy pork if you want. Obviously, that, that, that's forbidden in Islam, but there are places and shops you can, you can if you're not Muslim. Um, you really can pretty much do most things you would want to do. Um, and you are told, and people make it very clear to you, what the, the rules that might might surprise you are. Mm -hmm. So, for example, you over showing over public display of affection would get you into trouble, but typically someone would say something to you first, and you'd say, oh, sorry, I'm sorry about that, if you did it, that would be the end of it. Yeah. Um, so it's a, it's a very tolerant city. It's Although it does get hot in summer, many of us tend to escape the, the summer heat and run away for a couple of months. Yeah. Um, but the rest of the year, a lot of the time, the weather's lovely. So right now, in winter, uh, in the UK, it's glorious weather in Dubai, sunny, you can sit outside in shirts and uh, enjoy, enjoy cool evenings and warm days. You mentioned um, tourism in Dubai. Uh, the UAE has the seventh largest oil reserves in the world, mm. but I understand 
it is diversifying, diversifying into tourism, as you mentioned, but also into foreign businesses. And it's trying to attract, I understand, foreign businesses to come into the Dubai International Financial Centre, uh, introduced legislation in 2008. Uh, tell me a bit about this and what are the benefits and how it works. Okay, so to start with, um, the, the, each emirate has a different source of income. So most of the oil wealth is in Abu Dhabi's emirate, in the Abu Dhabi emirate, um, and, but they too are trying to diversify. Dubai doesn't actually make much money from oil, um, and I think it makes almost the same from oil as it does from tourism. So tourism is in many ways uh, the most important, one of the most important industries for them. Um, Dubai seeks to attract a whole host of businesses, uh, and this is important because although obviously many of your listeners are thinking about financial planning and so on, the important distinction between Dubai and other financial centres is that it's a place of substance, it's not just a place of brass plates. And so in um, the modern day where there are attacks on by many governments looking for tax revenue on so-called tax havens, um, often uh, in many cases because of lack of understanding of how they work, um, but there's a difficulty, say, if you have a BVI company of showing you really do anything in the BVI, you obviously don't. But in Dubai, you can have a business which is a real business and it's doing real things. And there's a huge industrial area there. There are factories, there are assembly plants, there are all, all manner of things. It's a highly diversified manufacturing and distribution center. And it's only getting bigger. They're building another airport. There's Ports are increasing, Abu Dhabi's got a new port that's also getting to be very big. And these are, it can be anything, and they they typically serve uh, the uh, Indian subcontinent in Africa. They're very strong. Uh, if you've got a business in Africa, you may well put your regional hub in Dubai because it's got excellent air links with Emirates Airlines and Fly Dubai and some of the other airlines at Etihad and, uh, um, so, and, and so on. So you've got excellent transport, very easy to move there, high standard of living, because it's a tolerant country, because it's uh, it, you, you can sort of get the home comforts, people, it's easy to find staff to relocate there, much easier than perhaps some other places in the region or further afield. So all of this is, is the ground for that. And then within that, you have the Dubai International Financial Centre and now a rival uh, financial centre in Abu Dhabi, Abu Dhabi Global Markets, both of which have common law legal systems, their own specialist court, and um, laws which are very similar, if not the same as English law. And it's within those that you tend to find some people trying to find family offices and so on. But it's important that you don't have to be in that if you are, if, if say, for example, you're a single family uh, business or set of businesses wanting to do something in Dubai, you do not have to go into the DIC. Mm -hmm. And what you can do is you can use DIC laws to um, govern what you're doing, even if it's not in the centre. But if you do choose to use a centre, if you're doing something which would be regulated, such as looking after other people's money, that's a multi-family offices and so on, then you would be in DIFC or, or ADGM. And uh, they have a regulator model, loose on the FCA here, and um, you go through processes you'd expect to, which most people would be familiar with, in order to get set up. Mm, thank you. At Chief Foss, I set up single family offices and have, have done for many prominent Middle Eastern families. I usually set up the holding structure in Jersey or Guernsey with a holding company owned by a trust. The UAE legislative initiatives attract, are they attracting Emirati families 
to set up the ownership structures in the UAE or are they designed to attract non-Emirati families to locate to the UAE and who or what owns the shares? Good question. Um, I, everyone is different. Um, there is no uh, cookie cutter, though we work closely with um, one or two corporate services providers whose business is setting these things up in both of the main uh, free zones. Um, they say to us, and it's our experience with our own clients, that typically it started out being Europeans, many Europeans, um, who were relocating to escape, bluntly to escape from uh, difficult tax uh, regimes, uh, moving their businesses from wherever to, to Dubai, mm -hmm. setting up home there, and then wanting a, a trust structure to, to join with that. And for their purposes, they, they would prefer to have everything in the UAE because, of course, they can go meet the people and they, it's all in one place and they, it's easy to do your banking and so on. Everything's there. And those structures could be owned directly or they could be owned through trusts or foundations, which could be Dubai, DIFC, or MGM trusts or foundations. They're, the laws exist for, for them domestically. But equally, some people prefer to use some of the other jurisdictions. So there are offshore firms in Dubai who specialize in BVI, Cayman, and what have you. And uh, there's the Jersey and Guernsey finance uh, promoters are, are very busy as well. Um, they are all doing a roaring trade. Everyone will always tell you, of course, their jurisdiction is the best one. But we tend to find it just, it's the client preference. What is it they want to do? Um, and what would be the best fit? Mm. So, for example, if you were doing something with a lot of emerging market focus, you would be well advised to choose, say, a Channel Islands vehicle because it comes with the regulatory oversight that gives people comfort, um, even though the regulations may just be as good in DIC. Um, so it's more perception. Um, and then in terms of the Emirati, the local family side, that historically was seen as being less um, significant. And um, those Emiratis who have these structures typically focus on uh, Channel Island or, or Caribbean uh, entities to hold their, their structures. And I think that's obviously because they, they want to keep it out of their, perhaps their government's eyes. Um, but now, now that trust has grown has grown in these financial in the in the free zones you're seeing increasing number of uh, emiratis and other gulf arabs um using them for their own use and of course they actually have more they can do with them because for example there are limits on what foreigners can own and whereas an emirati can own anything uh pretty much anything so if they have land they may put that through a trust structure or something similar to, and that will be okay because the ultimate beneficial owners you can call it that, the set laws and the beneficiaries are Emiratis. Mm. Um, so you can use those in slightly different ways. Um, so that's, uh, that's what people are seeing a lot more of. And there's a need for that because, um, not because of people commonly think that it's a way to dodge Sharia. Many people don't want to dodge Sharia. They take it very seriously. It's that... It doesn't the break the, the splitting of a company doesn't always work very cleanly with or without it. Sharia is simply a set of rules for how much the percentages of who gets what. Um, firstly, a family you're seeing now a new generation coming in, a new generation of so the people who founded the UAE are retiring, if you will, or already retired, and their sons and daughters are taking over these businesses. And sometimes people want to say, well, this this child can have this business, this other one can have something else. While they're alive, there is no Sharia issue. Um, 
but then they may want to ensure that the shares are the, the benefits, the profits from those companies go to certain people. So there's, you could use you can use these structures, all kinds of things, to ensure good corporate governance, to ensure that the right people get what you want them to have. The only issue that Sharia will have will be will be on the assets that the that individual has when they pass away, um, which will be less if they've done this. You mentioned quite a lot about the jurisdiction and geography. Um, the UAE is, is, is really quite in the middle of a lot of jurisdictions, in particular Africa. And I, I understand you've been doing quite a lot of business yeah. out of Dubai into Africa. Absolutely. I mean, that's another great attraction of the UAE. It's not just a big, it's not just a, an important country in itself, and it doesn't just have, um, you know, a number of cities in themselves, if you, if you will. It's, it's a springboard to a lot of other places. And in the same way as, say, Singapore and Hong Kong are springboards into those various parts of Asia, um, it, Dubai, it, Dubai particularly is seen as in one way you could go, one way you could go to India, Pakistan, Bangladesh, and so on, and that at least half the country has South Asian uh, roots. You also have a lot of people in the stars, which often people don't think about. That's actually a few hours away. Um, and so, for example, Kazakhstan set up a financial center quite recently, and it had a lot of help from the DIFC in Dubai doing that. There's a close relationship there. We tend not to think of those things when we're not from those countries. And then um, from our practice, we do a lot, as, as you said, we do, do do a lot in Africa. We see um, the continent as being um, really going to be a very strong growth in the coming years. Yes, there'll be ups and downs as always are. Yes, some countries will suffer all sorts of things and the, the stereotypes will be flagged again. But there are plenty of countries which are growing very fast, some of the fastest growing economies in the world. Some are doing really, really interesting things. And what you now have is um, the difference between now, perhaps, and say, when I first went there in the early 90s, when I first went to Ethiopia, um, is knowledge. Because, of course, everybody has a phone. And so, and education is much better now. So that you have a population, nearly all these countries, who know full well what the rest of the world looks like. Um, they have the ability, many of many of well-educated people have the ability to execute, to do business, to, and obviously they want to. Everyone wants a standard of living uh, the same as we have. You know, they, want, they want a roof over their heads and a car and to be able to travel and so on. And then you see things from that that, in some, you, you may be surprised initially and think, well, actually, that's not a surprise. To give you an example, um, Ethiopia, fast-growing country, 110-plus million people, um, really developing fast in things like manufacturing, which people would not think of, has cheap hydroelectricity, about to build another dam. The bad dam's built, it's about to fill it. Controversial in some ways, but will generate a lot of power. Um, so it's industrializing from a country which was just agricultural, still very important agriculturally with coffee, leather, and so on. And as it's getting richer, you see things such as there's um, developments in Djibouti, which is its main sea access, where resorts are being built for Ethiopians because they want to go to the beach at the weekend. Well, of course they do, because that's what we all do. <laughs> and most people want to do that. And um, there was a very interesting piece that was a chap called Hans Rosling, who um, some of your listeners may have heard of, he's a statistician, does a lot on population growth and so on. And his great quip was the best investment in the next X years long term was um, 
beach problem, beach, beachfront property in Somalia. Oh gosh! And uh, his 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 uh, justification for that was that um, as Africa grows richer, which inevitably it will, more people want to go to the seaside. And Somalia has a huge, very beautiful coastline, and it's completely undeveloped. Um, and so again, um, people's minds think of Black Hawk Down, and they think, oh my, no one ever go there. But it isn't like that in all of the country. Um, and there are areas of that which are growing fast as people who left in the Civil War got an education in Canada, States or Europe are coming back. So there's exciting things happening in many, many countries. We have clients based in Dubai who've asked us to do things for them, both disputes and uh, to help them set up or to help them expand or joint venture or what have you, a whole host of business reasons. And so we find ourselves getting there more and more um, to different countries to, to do those things with, with our clients and seeing more and more really interesting things on the way. I have a client who's doing business in Africa and uh, they're just at the point where they need to find a base and they're actively looking in Dubai yes. to, 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 to base their business and their family office. How easy is it to obtain a residence in Dubai? How many days do you need to spend in the country? Uh, would you need to buy somewhere or can you rent? What are the, what are the conditions? Well, first, I mean, it's, a, it's a, certainly a good choice for them if, uh, because um, so many African cities can be reached from Dubai. It's a really a good hub. Um, Africa has its own aviation hubs, um, the obvious ones being uh, uh, Nairobi and Addis and then South Africa to some degree. Um, others are competing there, but um, and they're very good. So Addis has very connect connectivity. But the Emirates has better, and so it's worth the few extra hours. And of course, as I said before, it's um, it's seen. Although Ethiopia, say, is a nice country, it's generally harder to get people to move there than it is to Dubai. And Dubai has made it very easy for people to go there. It's very much set up to make life easy. It wants people there. That's its economy. It's people, um, and uh, so it's very easy to set up the company. Um, you can have they have what's called onshore, which is a standard LLC. Historically, you always have to have a local partner for that, but there are many ways to deal with that issue. Um, if you don't want one, but many people do, there's good reasons to have local partners. Um, and uh, But now that rule has been uh, watered down somewhat for certain industries. Um, there are restricted industries. There are certain things you can't do in Dubai because they're restricted for Emiratis or they're secure. You couldn't necessarily do defense, something like that. Um, and then there's restrictions in oil and gas and so on. But if you take a sort of, we'll say, widget manufacturing or distribution, um, then you might have a free zone uh, company and be in the Joe Valley free zone or one of the other free zones. You can bring everything in free of tax. You only have to pay duty if you take it out of the free zone. Um, very easy to set that up. And then very easy to get the residency visa. Obviously, they check who you are. They don't have, if, uh, you're, if you're somebody that other countries wouldn't want, maybe they don't want you either. But I suspect um, the people that we all work with, uh, that generally isn't a problem. They do want investors. They do want um, high net worth individuals. And um, as a result, a lot of people are relocating to the UAE and it um, enriches it further. Mm. Um, and in terms of how long you have, it's easy to get the visa. From their perspective, you only have to be in the country every six months. So you, you don't, as long as you enter and exit, uh, as long as you enter, Less than six months after you last entered, after you are left, sorry, then uh, then you're fine. 
Now that's not very much. <laughs> How long do you have to stay each time? As little as long as you want. I've been in and out and not stayed the night there before, so um, but I say sometimes I wonder if I should live there because I'm in planes all the time. But uh, no, there's no there's no restriction at all, and there's no exit visas or anything like that. Um, there are people who get stuck there because of uh, if you if you um, don't take care, you run up debts and so on. And obviously mm -hmm. that that some people do have issues, but um, we we try and help people not get to that. It's generally speaking, people who try and do things themselves, which they don't know how to do, and then um, it can can lead, can lead in tears. But with, with so many family businesses relocating to Dubai, and I'm seeing this as well. Essentially, you, your background was a litigator. Uh, there must be plenty of work resolving commercial and family mm. disputes. Give me some examples of the type of work that you do for your clients. In contentious? Yeah, okay. in contentious. So uh, we do have a very strong client base of families and family businesses. And typically, um, really with any dispute, it's relationship breakdown. And um, whether or not it's a family business, it boils down to you know, you've gone into business with somebody to do something and it hasn't worked out. And you've all fallen out and go and phone your lawyers. Um, and then that's maybe said to be something more serious than a breach of contract, maybe said to be fraud. But that's sort of the, the, the basics. So we see a lot of joint ventures that weren't properly documented. It's probably the most common. Uh, people who um, had big ideas in the beginning, as we all do when we're setting things up, high hopes, they didn't work out, and then they blame the other person. And those things can get pretty, can get pretty brutal. As a firm, we try really hard to avoid going to court or to arbitration. Both are expensive and they destroy relationships. Um, there are ways you can efficiently go to court. I mean, but even so, we try and avoid it. So, for example, the Dubai, uh, the DIC Small Claims Court has a very fast turnaround, and you can contract to be in that even if you're above their threshold up to a certain point. Um, and you can write uh, sophisticated arbitration clauses so you have a quick dispute. But even so, the loser will always be pretty sore, and the winner. Um, Winner may also be upset because they don't get paid, for example. The, the loser has sold money away somewhere, run away, left the country. So we try very hard in our cases to do, and it's a very Middle Eastern way, is to try not to have a winner and a loser, but to have everyone walk away with something to settle. So we very much focus on that. We might do it ourselves. We might bring in an important person, if you will, someone we'll listen to. Um, and both my partner, Mohammed, and I focus on that very much. But if it doesn't work... Um, then we spend our time working out where to sue if we're the claimant or where to try to avoid being sued if we're the defendant and what we're going to do about that. And then in those cases, we bring in, because Dubai is so international, very few cases are purely Dubai. We work very closely with other law firms. Um, and so as a result, we're fortunate to be involved in some big cases, even though we're a relatively small firm. Um, and we've worked with uh, some of the big firms in the States and in the city particularly those with no Dubai office, because obviously then they, we, we can cover everything. But we also do work for some of the international firms in Dubai, because they may not have um, MRT, and they may not be qualified to give MRT advice. Family disputes tend to be the domain of the Sharia courts. Can you give a bit of example of that? Well, uh, Sharia applies to, um, pure, uh, to a pure family issue. So, for example, inheritance or divorce. Now, um, that can be helpful or harmful depending on your view. 
um, because you'll get a very different outcome if you divorce and divide than you would if you divorced in the UK, for example. Typically, you, and this is just very rough, uh, you, in a Sharia divorce, you take out what you came in with. So if you are, if one person's very wealthy and the other person isn't, the wealthy person leaves the money and the other person doesn't get very much. And they may have a, a modest maintenance to be paid, and that's it. Whereas in the UK, um, you tend to see the pie cut in two regardless. I know this all you know, very rough and case by case and so on, but that's uh, in broad terms. Um, in terms of other things such as um, children and things like that, obviously, again, it all depends. Um, but, but many of the business disputes you see are not Sharia. They are business disputes. And uh, then UAE law applies if you haven't put in something else. But those who are well advised will have a shareholder agreement with an arbitration clause, and that's how they'll deal with that. And obviously, that's what we hope, because it's a lot easier to resolve. Um, it, otherwise, they'll find themselves translating everything to Arabic and going to the Dubai courts. Um, and uh, one tends to have a slightly different experience there. Last question, Peter. Next year, Dubai is host, hosting the Expo 2020. Uh, apparently, they're going to host 25 million visitors. Do you expect this to be a major boost to the economy of the Emirates, and are you looking forward to it? Well, I think it's going to be excellent. Um, Dubai never does anything by halves. Um, what I've learned there is um, you know, one sort of sees a project underway. Firstly, you they get on with it. I think that's something that when you come from Britain and you there's endless inquiries and you know that they're going to do the thing anyway, uh, but they string it out and uh, po political buck-passing takes place. None of that will happen. They decide they're going to... And a good example, for example, is the canal project. They decided that... Um, they realised that if you have water by your building, it commands a higher price. People like living by water. So either you reclaim more land or you bring the water to the, to the land, as it were, to, to the properties. So they dug a huge canal and then some of us, I think, said, oh, yeah, it sort of seems a bit unnecessary and um, is it going to be any good? And, of course, when it was completed, it looked wonderful and it's an excellent idea and uh, has made a real difference. So um, Dubai always puts on a good show, so it will be very good. I have no idea how it will affect the economy. They've got high hopes for it. Um, there's a lot of people coming, but a lot of people come to Dubai anyway. So um, uh, I'm looking forward to it. And uh, But it's just a stepping stone in Dubai's growth rather than a, rather than the be-all and end-all, if you will. Thank you, Peter, for joining me in the studio today to tell me what it's like to live in Dubai for global wealthy families. We will hear from more experts in, in Dubai later in this series. Join us next week when we will look at how to protect the family and wealth by ensuring against kidnap and extortion. This will be our fifth episode of How to Keep Your Money. Thank you for listening. Goodbye.